Thank you, Reverend Peters. Um, thank you for your leadership and for your prayers. And for the rest of you that have paved the way for this morning with your prayers, I thank you very much. They are most appreciated. Well, I invite you to turn in the Bible to the 14th chapter of Mark, which if you're using the pew Bibles on the inside and the outside uh, of the aisles, that can be found on page 850. So, Mark chapter 14. And this morning we will focus our attention mainly on verses 1 to 9. Now today we are finishing our now 27 week long series through uh, this gospel of Mark. And even though we're finishing our trek here, rather than at the end of the book, I'm, uh, I'm still convinced these verses are a fitting place for, for us to end. For the message to us out of these verses... Um, addresses not only the, the thesis, the main idea of this entire gospel, but also that of the entire Bible. And so for that reason alone, I am sure that these nine verses are as fine a place for us as any to complete our journey. So with that in mind, I invite you to stand in honor of the Word of God. As I read aloud and you read silently the first nine verses to the 14th chapter to the Gospel of Mark. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You may be seated. And as you do, let's pray together. Father in heaven, the Apostle Paul, when he was called to preach the gospel, said that he came with fear and much trembling. And as do I, Lord, as do I, I come now with fear and much trembling at the task of preaching your word to your people. And so, Lord, I come to you with a plea. Send your Holy Spirit. Put your words in my mouth. Put your meditations in my heart. Leave me not to myself. For if I'm left to myself, Lord, your people will not be blessed and your word will not be spoken and your glory will not be seen. So, Father, come now. Send your Spirit, I pray. Open eyes. Unlock ears. Give us new hearts to understand the glorious, magnificent worth of Jesus Christ. It's in His name and for His sake we pray. Amen. Well, as some of you know, um, actually I guess as Chris just said, uh, I am enrolled at seminary at uh, Beeson Divinity School here in Birmingham. And uh, last fall I took a class on uh, Galatians taught by Dr. Frank uh, Thielman. Uh, 
one of the most um, gifted and talented New Testament scholars uh, in the world, arguably. Um, and over the course of that class, I witnessed the most impressive display of Bible handling I have ever seen. Uh, the precision with which he dissected Paul's argument, the sophistication of his understanding of the Greek language and the comprehensiveness of his entire knowledge of the scriptures, all of that left me amazed at his ability to wield the word of God. And now our, our final assignment was to write an expository sermon on a passage that he had chosen. And so, but before I began writing my sermon, I wanted to hear this swordsman of the scriptures describe to me what he meant by expository preaching. So one day after class, I went up to his office and I asked him. And I was genuinely shocked at his answer. He, he said, simply explain the text and apply it. For the Bible is but a few simple repeated truths. And I, and I thought to myself, I really did think this. I do not believe you. <laughs> I said, there is no way that is true. I said, there is no way this book, if it bears witness to what is eternally and objectively true, can be but a few simple repeated truths. But as I have sat where for 26 weeks where you now sit, I realize he was right. As I have listened to sermon after sermon on this Gospel of Mark, I see that the whole book repeats one simple truth again and again for 16 chapters. And that truth is this. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and the Son of God. And the question these nine verses are posing to us this morning is, have we appraised Jesus rightly? Or are we letting our sin tell us lies about the value of his true worth? Another way of asking that is, say, do we see Jesus Christ this morning as he is infinitely precious and eternally worthy of all our worship? Or has the sin, which the Bible says so easily entangles our faith, begun to blur our vision such that we are not seeing his true beauty clearly? That's the question these nine verses are asking us to answer. Now, posted at the back of your worship guide is a, uh, an outline for this morning's uh, sermon. And the main idea we want to focus on out of these verses is, since Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, we must constantly strive to appraise His worth rightly. Now, in this text, three appraisals are made on Jesus. And by appraisal, I simply mean a judgment of worth. One comes from the chief priests and the scribes. One comes from this woman. And another comes from the disciples. And what I'd like to simply do this morning is... Uh, consider how these three uh, appraisals of Jesus here address our own assessments of what we believe the Son of God to be worth. Then, I want us to consider how Jesus assesses what this woman has done. And then finally, I want to end with an appeal as we close out our journey through this gospel together. So, 
the first appraisal here is made by the chief priests and the scribes. Now, their assessment of Jesus is that he is a worthy opponent. Okay? Now, when I say that, I do not mean that the chief priests and the scribes see Jesus as a respectable adversary. By worthy opponent, I mean they see him as a rival that they must get rid of. So, look back to chapter 11, verse 18. That's two pages to the left. All right? Chapter 11, verse 18. So, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Okay? So they want to destroy Jesus because they are afraid of losing control of the crowd. All right? Now, you don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen to John 5.18. Okay? This is John 5.18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay? One more. Luke 22, 1 and 2. Again, just, uh, these are just to be all considered together. Okay? Now, this is Luke's account of the same time frame we're looking at here in Mark 14. All right? So, Luke writes... Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Okay? Now, a rival by definition means two or more are striving to possess what only one can. Okay? Now, so this is the reason I say that the chief priests and the scribes appraise Jesus as a worthy opponent is that they perceive him to be a viable contender for the lordship of Israel. A lordship which they believe belongs to them. Okay? So therefore, in their minds, this is what they infer. They say, we must rid ourselves of this Jesus, lest more people start to believe that he is the Christ. So, boil all that down. And you can, I think you can see fairly clearly that the motive behind Jesus' murder was that the chief priests and the scribes believed Jesus was behaving too much like the Christ in that he had begun ruling what they thought was their kingdom. So, to them, Jesus was a, an opponent most worthy of their opposition. Now, what can we learn from uh, here about our own assessments of Jesus based on that of these chief priests and the scribes, well, one thing is to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? Now, and that reality, here, this is, the, this is the point. That reality is grounds for exaltation, not execution. Now, why? Because Jesus Christ is a good king. Okay, now, I want you to picture in your mind what a good king looks like. I know that idea is not popular in our land, but I want you to, as best you can, Picture a good king. Now, in my mind, a good king looks like this. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That, to me, is the definition of a good king. And it just so happens that what I just read is God's self-description of the kind of king that he is. Now, this is parenthesis. If you ask yourself, what is God like? 
brand Exodus 34, 6, and 7 to your heart and your mind. Close parenthesis. Now, let's do a little theology here, okay? Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is God's self-description of what he is like. And I don't think there's a person in this room that would argue that this self-revelation is anything other than good. Okay? Now, and as I said earlier, this Gospel of Mark repeats one simple truth again and again that has two parts. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and the Son of God. Okay? Now, put these two together. Put Exodus 34, 6, and 7 in concert with the point that Mark is trying to make. And you will see Jesus not only is the Christ, the promised King of Kings, but he also rules the way God rules. He rules with graciousness, with mercy, with steadfast love, with holiness, with justice, with righteousness, with forgiveness, and with everlasting loyalty to what he has said. So the point I'm making is that we should appraise Jesus as the Christ, and that should make our hearts embrace him, not oppose him. For this Jesus is a very good king. Now, that's the first appraisal. So, moving now to the second one, and we're moving quickly. So, this second appraisal made on Jesus comes from this woman who most scholars are sure is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom John raised from the dead. I'm sorry, who Jesus raised from the dead in John 11. So, she brings this alabaster flask, a very costly ointment or perfume, to the table where Jesus is reclining. She breaks it, and then she pours the entire contents. Over his body. Now, to help us understand her appraisal, I think it pertinent to gain a bit of perspective as to what exactly she has done. What she has done, I believe, would be the equivalent to something like this. So, dads, you come home one night and your children say to you, Dad, let's build a campfire in the backyard. So you say, sure thing. So you quickly build a makeshift fire pit, you get some lighter fluid, you get everything else you need for a wonderful night out by the fire. And, but just as you get ready to, to build this fire, you recognize you have nothing to burn. Not a, not a stick, not a piece of wood, not even a single piece of paper. Zippo. So, and, and just as you realize this, out comes mom with a giant suitcase. And... She can barely lug this thing out. She's dragging this thing. She's struggling. She's, and you, and you, in your mind, you're sure that your precious wife, your lovely bride, has just brought out sticks and paper and wood to keep this fire burning all night. It's going to be a terrific evening. So you stand next to the suitcase. You've got your lighter in hand. You're ready to douse whatever she pours out so you can get this fire lit. And inside, and once she comes over and she unzips the case, and inside there's not a single log just dollar bills. She has withdrawn every dollar she has made for an entire year, loaded in a suitcase, and brought it out to be burned as kindling for a simple campfire. And, and instead of placing just a few dollars in at a time to sort of get the flame going, she dumps the whole case, douses it with lighter fluid, lights it, and in an instant, every penny she's made is up in flames. Now, hopefully that's a bit far-fetched, but I don't think it's too far off the kind of sacrifice Mary made. She has brought this very costly ornament worth an entire year's wages, which was probably 
a family heirloom, broken the flask, and poured every drop over Jesus' body. This is an incredible sacrifice. So now, and the explanation for a sacrifice such as this can only be an appraisal of Jesus' worth that's far different than that of these scribes and the disciples. To her, this deed was merely an expression of Jesus' incalculable worth. To her, Jesus was more precious than productivity. Now, having said that, let's move quickly to this third appraisal, which is that of the disciples. Now, clearly the disciples are angry at Mary because in their minds she has squandered or wasted this very valuable resource. She has missed an opportunity for productive ministry. So look one more time at verses 4 and 5. The disciples say, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now here I want us to notice how the disciples' nearsightedness handicaps their ability to appraise the worth of Jesus rightly. They have, their error is that they have fixated so much of their attention on the work of their ministry that they have lost sight of its purpose. They have tripped, I believe, on a hidden wire of sin that the devil constantly tries to jut in the path of us ministers. Now, when I say minister, I'm talking to every Christian in this room. Every adopted child of the kingdom must be a ready servant for the kingdom. Now, Ephesians 4.11 teaches us this. Ephesians 4.11 teaches that my role this morning, what I'm trying to do right now, is to equip you, the saints, for your particular work of ministry. And that means that service in the kingdom... When Reverend Peters got up and said that our goal is to strive to serve in the kingdom, that means that this is not an option. Service is not an option. The question is not if we will serve. The question is where and how. Now, since this is a case, we need to consider much more carefully this particular sin upon which the disciples have stumbled. So the error here, like I said, is that they have lost sight of kingdom priorities. Worship precedes service in the kingdom of God. Worship of the King of Kings is the point of and the purpose behind all Christian service. If we serve for any other reason than that, whatever else our service may be, it's not Christian. So, bearing that in mind, there's a great irony here. So that the disciples are scolding Mary for worshiping Jesus, the very thing which should be the goal of their wanting to serve the poor. So the question for us is how does this happen? How do the disciples, those who have spent three years listening to Jesus, declare himself again and again to be the Son of God with miracle after miracle, how do they become so fixed on the wrong objective? Now... To answer that, I want us to consider something I recently learned from my brother. My brother, as some of you know, is a football coach, more or less. <laughs> so he has a, a, a philosophy which he says about peak performance. He says peak performance happens when the objective is clear, the mind is uncluttered, and focus is consistent. That's not bad, I thought. Now, I think that has a lot of truth in it that we can learn from. Because... Substitute 
performance with ministry. Peak ministry happens when the objective is clear, the mind is uncluttered, and focus is consistent. Now, the objective of our service, your particular work of ministry, is to ignite passionate fires of worship to the king like the one burning inside the heart of Mary here. That's our objective. That's what we are after. Now, I had a lot more I wanted to say about this little plug. It's about small group ministry. We really need to help each other here. This is why small group ministry is so vital. We must look out for one another. We must guard one another from the tripwires that the disciples have fallen on. This is the point of it. And I had a lot more I wanted to say, but I have some other things I need to say. But file that. When you walk out, consider that. Consider how small group fellowship helps us protect one another from missing the point of our work. Now, the assessment. What does Jesus have to say to all of this? What is his reaction to this event that has taken place? How does he assess what Mary has done? What does he say? He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done what she could. And in doing so, she has anointed my body beforehand, beforehand for burial. So in sum, Jesus is saying to the disciples, neither you nor she has fully understood what she's done. Her act of worship has accomplished more than she realizes. She intended to honor me, and she has. But her act of love has transcended her intentions. She has anointed my body for burial because in two days' time I go to die. And her act of love has readied my body for the trial that will set you free. So she is worthy, therefore, of more honor than she even realizes. Now, I'm almost done. But there is a powerful application here that I want to illustrate to you with a testimony from my own life. My late grandmother was a Christian. Uh, and when my brother and I were young and we would spend the night at her house, she would, uh, she would read us Bible stories before bed. I can, I can still remember the tone of her voice as she would sit on the floor, my brother here, me here. I can still remember some of the images in my head. I have never forgotten those stories. Now, years later, when I was 15, I was in my darkest hour to date spiritually. I had um, made a very poor decision. Uh, I was without a school for two weeks, and, and I felt zero remorse for what I had done. I knew I'd made a bad decision. But any awareness that the life that I had chosen to live was headed down a destructive path such that it was inflicting a great deal of harm to those I loved and cared about around me. That thought was nowhere to be found. So I, and, and I spent two weeks in our garage assured, convinced, that I would just sit there and lift weights in our garage that I was the one who was done wrong. So after two weeks of looking, we finally found a school that would take me in. And after my first day on my way home, my mother and I were in a car wreck that should have inflicted much more uh, damage to me than it did. 
so when my grandmother arrived, she assessed the scene, she comforted my mother, and then she walked over to me. And she looked right in my eyes, and she said six words. That was it. She said, you were saved for a reason. Now, I believe with all my heart, and I submit to you that you are listening to that reason, that God Almighty raised me out of that ditch and out of the bondage to sin and death for this very purpose, to stand before you and to proclaim the magnificence of his name and his worth. I am sure of that. I'm positive of that. Six words. Six words from a faithful servant of Jesus Christ were all he needed to turn this life upside down. My life from those six words has never been the same. Six words and a few Bible stories in my grandmother's life was a life well lived. So I tell you that this morning to encourage you. To motivate you by saying this, Christian, you have no idea what the Lord is ready to do with your worship. Look at me. So, we are at the end of our journey through Mark. 27 weeks to this point. And I want to close with an appeal. Cross Creek Church. Waste your lives on the Jesus proclaimed in this gospel. Rightly appraise his worth. Recognize that he is lovelier than life itself. And then worship. Worship the worth of his name. And then, then, stand back and behold what he will do in and through your life to spread wildfires of burning affection for His immeasurable worth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are at this journey through this Gospel of Mark. And like every Gospel ends with a commission, Lord, we walk out of this place a commissioned people commissioned to work and to spend our lives selflessly and sacrificially for one another and for those that do not know you but we do that with the objective in mind that we strive to worship your name and Lord I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my hearts has been pleasing in your sight and may it bless your people now do a work now as we worship you and as we come to the table. Do abundantly more than anything I could have asked or dreamed or imagined. I ask this, Lord Jesus, for your sake and in your name. Amen.